You know, one of my favorite movies is, uh, is The Family Man, which you might have seen in the year 2000. It stars Nicolas Cage. It's, it's kind of the modern-day knockoff of uh, It's a Wonderful Life uh, with Jimmy Stewart, for those of you who watched movies maybe in the 60s or 70s or like watching those old Christmas movies uh, every year that they come out, kind of the vintage stuff on, uh, at, at Christmas time with your family every year. But in, in The Family Man, Nicolas Cage is, a, is, is kind of the, he's the exact opposite of Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life. In Jimmy Stewart's Wonderful Life, his life is falling apart, and he goes home on Christmas Eve, and he's getting ready to commit suicide when he gets a second chance to live life. Uh, it's the exact opposite in The Family Man. Nicolas Cage is a multi-million dollar businessman on Wall Street, and he's doing really well. He's, he's kind of a scrooge of a man. He's going to make his, his staff work on uh, Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day if they have to to complete a merger that he's doing on the other side of the world. And he's, he's not into committing suicide, but on the way home... On Christmas Eve, he gets mugged by an actor playing Don Cheadle. Maybe if you've seen the movie, you you can remember it. And in this interchange, as he's being robbed, Don Cheadle basically asks him, not knowing that Don Cheadle is is the angel who's there to give him a second chance, asks him if he would change anything in his life, and Cage's answer is no. Everything in his life is exactly the way he wants it to be. He has no regrets with anything that have ever happened in his life, and his life is perfect the way that it is. Cheadle kind of laughs and says, well, that's about to change. And as Nicolas Cage goes to bed that night, he wakes up next to a girl that he had been engaged to 13 years before, but had broken it off with her so he could pursue business. And not only next to her, but woke up with kids jumping on him in bed. And he found out that he was in an entirely different reality, that in fact he was now living in a world where he had married his high school sweetheart. He was a a used tire salesman for his father-in-law, whose car didn't start the vast majority of the time. He had these dirty snot-nosed kids that were always around him, kind of messing up his life. And for a week, he couldn't wait to get back to who he was. But after two weeks and then three weeks and a month, he began to see his life through a different perspective. And he began to see that life could be better than what he really had if he would focus on the more important things in life. The end of the movie, as you can imagine, is, is him having the chance to go back to his previous reality or to live in his new one. And if you've seen the movie or if you've seen enough movies, you know how it goes. He chose to stay with his wife and his kids. And it just made me wonder, you know, if we could go back and do things differently, would we? If we could go back a year, if we could go back five years, if we could go back to ten years, if you could go back to college, if you could go back to high school, would you live life differently? Are there any decisions you made that you regret, that you wish you could have a do-over with? You know, I had my family man, it's a wonderful life moment, on November 7, 2009, I can clearly remember it. A man who was a friend of mine, who had three students in my youth ministry, a man who was a good man, one of the godliest men I know, who had uh, worked as a football coach in the NFL for uh, more than 25 years, had finally retired to live life with his wife. They bought the little house in the mountains of Colorado that they had always wanted. And within a year of retiring to finally spend the rest of his life with his wife, he had a heart attack and died very, very suddenly. One of his kids had just gone off to college. One was in college. One had completed college. And I went to his memorial service that day, and something happened at the memorial service that I've never seen before. Literally, his three boys did the funeral. None of them were preachers. None of them were clergymen. They just got up one at a time, and they talked about their dad. And as I sat there listening to these kids talk about their dad and the life that he lived, I thought about my funeral one day. And I thought about my son and my daughter standing up at my funeral and talking about me. And I was hit with kind of the stark reality that day. I am not right now who I want to be remembered as. I don't do the things in my life right now that I want people to say I did when I'm done living. And I left that funeral that day amazed at this man and the way that his family had talked about him and amazed at the spiritual leader that he was in his family But I left that day and began kind of a journey spiritually to figure out who I was, who I needed to be, who I I wanted to be remembered as. And two years later, we kind of find ourselves together right now. You know, I left and I said, as a Christian, I don't think I am who, who I wish I was. As a pastor and a minister, I don't think I'm doing the things that at the end of my life I'll, I'll want people to say that I did. And more than that, as a dad, Is my purpose on earth more than what I'm living right now? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be? Am I doing what I'll wish I have done when life gets to its ending point? And for more than a year, I read the Bible. I prayed. 
I read books. I studied the lives of great pastors. I studied the lives of great missionaries. I've been to dozens of churches all over the United States of America, kind of seeking for who I am, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to live my life, and, and really more than that, what I want my legacy to be, how I want to be remembered. And as I read through the Bible, I saw not only who I was supposed to be, but what the Bible says every Christian is supposed to be. And as we begin this church, you know, it was really important to me as we begin this church, God hit me with the reality that, Christian, if you try to grow a church without growing people, I'm not going to help you. Because growing people is a whole lot more important than growing a church. You take care of the people, I'll take care of the church. So, you know, I made a, a, a little covenant with God that, God, if you will just bring people... I promise I'll try to pour into them spiritually and help them get better spiritually. And what we're doing now, we we really don't launch our church community-wide till September 18th. Between now and then, we'll run all kinds of marketing campaigns and add stuff. We've got 31,000 homes that we'll hit with two mailers, letting them know we're doing a church. If you live in Lee Summit or Raymore, you'll get one of those. Uh, You'll get two of those between now and September 18th. But before we start the church, I want to make sure the temperature, the spiritual temperature of the hearts of the people in this room and and mine included, are where they need to be. And I'm going to ask you to take a 40-day journey with me beginning tomorrow, ending two days before we start our church, to see yourself between now and then become somebody spiritually that you've never been. And more than that, so at the end of 40 days, you'll have figured out what life was intended to be. Before I show you the things that our church is designed to do and that I think Christianity is intended to do, I want to read a verse for you. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Habakkuk. It's a really hard book to find. It's a really odd English word. It's got too many K's for how we say words in English. But if you can't find it, start in Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, and flip back. And I always have our ushers prepared with Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, uh, our ushers in just a minute are going to be walking down the aisle with a Bible. Just raise your hands. They'll give you one. You can hang on. You can look on a neighbor. You can keep it. You can give it back. It doesn't matter. But we always want to provide one for you if you don't have one. So as you see the ushers kind of walking by, you just their attention and they'll give you one but we're in the book of Habakkuk which is in the minor prophets and even when you have them memorized I still have to kind of flip through the Bible to find it because it's a difficult book it's a short book and usually you you kind of pass right by it and Habakkuk is an interesting guy because he was an Old Testament prophet who if you read his book was kind of sick of the world spiritually he was sick of religious institutions he was sick of religious people that called themselves religious but lived in a in a way that didn't really match what they said he was sick of the hypocrisy and he wondered where god was and when god was finally going to do something to straighten out the world that he thought was broken spiritually i believe habakkuk would look at our world today and the churches of today and he would feel very much the same way a lot of things churches say you should do they don't really do a lot of things churches say are important really aren't important to them if you look at how they spend their money and where they spend their time and i think habakkuk would have the same complaints and god said look i'll tell you how we're going to fix this But he said, I want you to make it really, really, really clear for people. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, the verse will be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. Right before God told Habakkuk how he was going to fix it, he said, I want to make this real clear. It said, then the Lord replied. This is after Habakkuk's second question saying, when are you going to do something to clean up the world? God said, write down the revelation. If you have your Bible, I want you in your Bible. And it's okay to write in your Bible. Circle that word revelation and just write in your Bible vision. So he's going to give him a vision of what was going to happen. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. So the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that the herald may run with it. Three quick things. God said, I'm going to show you something brand new that you need to know. Secondly, it needs to be real plain so that you can understand it. And third, you need to tell everyone. Those are the three things God said. I'm going to tell you something. It's going to be really simple. And then you need to make sure everyone understands it. As we get ready to embark on our church, I want to make it as simple as I can. I'm hoping the next 40 days are the most important, exciting, uh, uh, meaning, spiritual days of your life if you embark on this challenge uh, at at the end of this service. We've bought uh, hundreds of this book, The Purpose Driven Life. This is a book that was written by a pastor named Rick Warren. This is the most successful, the the best-selling hardback book in american history i want you to think about that the best-selling hardback book in american history and it's it's meant to be studied over 40 days you read it between five and ten minutes a day and basically explains what am i here for what is the what's the purpose of life not my life but life in general what's the purpose of life and at the end of 40 days it takes you on a journey 
that I promise, even if you don't want to follow it, at least you'll know what you're supposed to be doing. And, and when that time comes, you can do it. But more than that, I need you to understand in the next six weeks, not only who you are spiritually, but what our church is about spiritually. I mean, that's a great question, is it not? Why did you start a church? Well, I didn't start a church because it's fun and easy. I didn't start a church because I had nothing else to do. I didn't start a church because I like to get up and preach. I started a church because I believed the things that the Bible says to do, I wasn't doing well enough. And I knew that I was supposed to do those, and I felt like God laying on my heart that I was supposed to help others do those things too. Four things that I really feel like the Bible says Christianity is that I want to show you. If you have your pen, if you have your little, uh, your little sermon outline, you can, you can take a few notes. You only have to write down four words. You can write down more than that if you want, but only four fill in the blank. should be real easy for you. The first responsibility, according to the Bible, that was given to the church by Jesus was to reach people far from God. And yes, it is as odd for me as it is for you to have a guy playing with my microphone on stage as I'm <laughs> preaching. You know, they tell you, ignore things like that. But clearly he's here touching me and pulling up my shirt. So I'll acknowledge that. Thank you, Kirk. Appreciate it, my friend. He's making sure things are okay. The first responsibility given to the church by Jesus was to reach people who were far from God, to reach people who, were, who, who weren't near to God, not even close to near to God. And this is an interesting mandate and one that's really found more in the New Testament than the Old Testament. If you look at folks in the Old Testament, they were pretty spiritual. And they were chosen because of how spiritual they were. They were, they were either called righteous or faithful or they, it was said they had a heart for God or that they trusted God. I mean, the, the people in the Old Testament that we read about were pretty spiritual people and God chose them because of the heart they had exhibited. The people in the New Testament were flat messed up before Jesus met them. I mean, they were more messed up than the folks in this room and, and more, more messed up than most of the people who we know. Last time we met on July 10th, we talked about the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. The New Testament's filled with people like her. She'd had five failed marriages, married five times, divorced five times, living with a guy probably engaged that she was going to get married to a sixth time and probably divorced a sixth time. I mean, a total mess up in life. Yet the Bible talks about Jesus going to people like her. In John chapter 8, we meet a woman that Jesus goes to who was caught in adultery. Now listen, you either have to be really stupid to get caught in adultery, or you have to be so adulterous that people know exactly what time you're committing adultery, on what day you're committing adultery, where you're committing adultery, and you have to do it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for them to know exactly where you are. And that's who she was. I don't know that she was a prostitute, but she was somebody who was having a lot of illicit affairs, and everyone knew it. They knew exactly where to find her, when to find her. It says they caught her in the act of adultery, which means they scoped out her sin. She was really messed up spiritually. A guy named Matthew, who actually ended up being one of the disciples. If you read the book of Matthew, every time he refers to himself, he says, I was a tax collector. Basically, by saying that, he said, I, I was a white-collar criminal. That's what he was. Tax collectors in those days were white-collar criminals. They could have all worked for Enron. They ripped people off. They took more money than they could, and they worked for the government. Now, I know no one in the government today takes people's money the way that they're not supposed to, but Matthew did. He was messed up, yet Jesus called him not, not only to be close to him, but to be a disciple of his. But maybe the greatest case of messed-up people who God cared deeply about was Mary Magdalene. And she's someone that if you've grown up in church, if you've heard the Christmas story, if you've heard the Easter story, you know her name. Mary Magdalene, some scholars say that she was a prostitute that, that Jesus came to and he radically changed her life. Others say that she had seven demons cast out of her. Whether she was a prostitute, whether she was demon-possessed, she was messed up. Would you agree? I mean, regardless, I don't know which of those is better or worse. She was messed up. Yet Jesus came to her and he claimed her as his own. He got so close to her that, think about it, the first person he appeared to when he raised from the dead I mean, you would think Jesus would go tell the Pope, right? Or Billy Graham, not a former prostitute, not a former demon-possessed woman. But the Bible says the first person that he went to to say, tell him I'm alive, was Mary Magdalene. Jesus loves messed up people. Jesus loves people who are far from God and probably aren't going to get anywhere near to God unless somebody goes to them. These are the type of people Jesus loved and the type of people Jesus loved to talk about experiencing God's love, probably highlighted in, in, in Luke chapter 15. There's a parable in Luke chapter 15. A parable is, a, is kind of an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. 
And it's called the parable of the prodigal son. Even if you've maybe not been around church, you, you've heard about it. A very wealthy man had two sons, an older son and a younger son. And his younger son went to his dad, and, and you could do this at the time, and literally said, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait for you to die. I don't want your money when I'm 50. I want it when I'm 20. I want to live my life. And he demanded that his dad give him his share of the inheritance right then, and his dad did it. And after he took his share of the inheritance, the Bible says he went to a foreign land, and, and he spent it, basically, he partied his tail off and blew millions of dollars. It would be like one of our kids going to Las Vegas, living for five years with a $3 million account that had, you know, no accountability. They just spend it as, as they wanted to. And the Bible says he ended up absolutely broke in this foreign land. And as he was working as a slave, it said he, he was a farmer just trying to get by. And the only food he had to eat as a farmer is what, what they fed the, the pigs. And the guy said, listen, you can work on my farm and whatever the pigs don't eat, you can have. And the guy looked at his life and said, man, my dad is a multimillionaire. My brother one day is going to have a huge inheritance. And I've blown it. I have messed up. I mean, I have blown it spiritually. But even if I go back and become a servant, at least we don't get, you know, my dad's servants don't get the leftovers from the animals. They get three meals a day. I'm going to go back to my house. I'm going to ask my dad to forgive me and just, and just be a servant. And he doesn't even have to pay me. I just want to be able to eat real people food. And it says that when he went back to his house, his dad every day had got up and wondered if he was going to come home and had been watching for him. And as his dad saw him coming down the driveway to say he was sorry, his dad rushed out to him. The son immediately saw his dad said, Dad, I want to say I'm so sorry. And the dad said, don't worry about it, all forgiven. Put his arms around him and basically restored him to his place in his family as a son. The older brother, of course, went nuts. But the older brother made an interesting observation that we don't hear in the story to the older brother speaks, and he told his dad he wasted all his money on reckless living and prostitutes. He spent millions, wasted millions of dollars on reckless living, what we would refer to as probably doing drugs, drinking a lot of alcohol, and getting prostitutes. That's what he did. Now, we read the prodigal son, and we don't, I mean, because he's in the Bible, he's not that messed up. I mean, he made some mistakes, but he's not that messed up, right? But you know who the prodigal son is? I mean, if you match the lifestyle, you know who the prodigal son is? It's Charlie Sheen. I mean, who's a guy who right now, you know, thinks of himself as a winner, but he, I mean, he's like lost his mind, right? And what does he, what is, what is he know? What wrecked him? Drugs, alcohol, and prostitutes. Or you could call them porn stars. That's, that's what he was paying for. That's what got him fired from a job that paid him $20 million a year. Now, we think about God loving Charlie Sheen, and we think, well, you know, I know God loves messed up people, but Charlie Sheen, he's crazy. I mean, if God loves Charlie Sheen, he's got to love us, right? Because Charlie, I mean, he's way crazier than anyone in this room. But that's the type of people that God reaches out to. Can you imagine how crazy the religious people would go if Charlie Sheen got saved and started coming to our church? The religious people would freak out. You know who would love it? People far from God. Who hated Jesus? Religious people who loved him, people far from God. Why? Because he reached Charlie Sheen. And he hung out with Charlie Sheen. And the religious people said, man, that guy's crazy. Do they know who he is? And the people far from God said, man, I'm messed up too. Can, can you help me? And Jesus built a ministry of messed up people. There's a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel written by a guy. I'm going to tell you a little bit of his story a little later in the message. But he has this quote in his book that's just tremendous. It talk about, talks about God's love for people who are, who are not anywhere near him. And he says, Jesus comes for sinners, for those as outcast as tax collectors and for those caught up in squalid choices and failed dreams. He comes for corporate executives, for street people, for superstars, for farmers, for hookers, for addicts, for IRS agents, for AIDS victims, and even used car salesmen. Jesus not only talks with these people, but he dines with them, fully aware that his table fellowship with sinners will raise the eyebrows of religious bureaucrats. You know, I don't know where you are spiritually today. Maybe nobody knows where you are spiritually today but you. But I know this. God loves you. And regardless how near you are, how far you are, God loves you. And he desires to be close to you. And every one of us has a Charlie Sheen in our life. Hopefully not somebody that bad or we'd all go crazy. But somebody who, like, is really far out there. Guess what? God loves them. And he wants you to help bring them closer to where he is. If I'm going to live for Jesus, I decided I've got to be about reaching people who aren't anywhere near where God is. And to know that that's okay. And if that turns a lot of church folks off, 
cool. I'm okay with that. We've got to reach people who are far from God. Secondly, the Bible says a Christian who's living for God, someone who's walking with Jesus, well, number two, most important, or as important as number one, they'll restore people who are away from God. And this is a really interesting scenario because there are people in this room today that are both far from God. There are people in this room today who, who haven't prayed, who haven't read their Bible, who haven't had a spiritual thought, who haven't even thought about God in years, and they've never known God. And there are also people in this room today who haven't read their Bible, haven't prayed, haven't had a spiritual thought, haven't thought about God for years. But they're, they're a Christian. At one point in their life, they went to church. They loved God. They had an experience with God. And something happened to turn them off. May, you know, maybe a, a church went south. Maybe, maybe something really bad happened. May, you know, maybe some things happened in their life by choice or by consequence or by circumstance. But, but they've kind of drifted. And the truth is, they've had an incredible experience with God at one point in their life. They're just, they're just not close to Him anymore. The thing that I wanted to share with you about, about Brennan Manning, this guy who wrote this book, Ragamuffin Gospel, and it basically talks about how God loves Christians even when we become a Christian and like we totally disown God, how God loves us and wants us back. And he wrote it because he became an alcoholic after he became a Christian. He was a Christian. He began to be in ministry. And after he was a Christian in ministry, he became an alcoholic. And he couldn't realize why for the longest time. And he thought, you know, God must, for me to mess up this bad, God must totally disown me. For me to blow it this bad after, after becoming a Christian. And he says this of struggling with alcohol. He said, how does a Christian become an alcoholic? And he said, I got battered and I got bruised by loneliness, by failure. I got discouraged. I got uncertain. I got guilt-ridden. And I took my eyes off Jesus. My Christ encounter when I became a Christian, unfortunately, did not transform me into an angel. And you know what? There are a lot of churches and a lot of people who think if you're a Christian who kind of goes AWOL, you're not welcome back anymore. They think Christianity means you should be an angel and you can't mess up. And people away from God are just thinking, you know, I I blew my chance. Even now as a Christian, he says this in his book, and I, I love this. This quote will be on the screen behind me. And I agree with him. I think if every Christian were honest, they would say they're this type of person. He said, when I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good and I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I'm honest, but I still play games. I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. I love that. I mean, I love that honesty. Man, I love God, but I love alcohol. You know, I struggle there. I love that honesty. And you know what? Some of you got to that point, I love God, but I, I love this too. And in your mind, you thought, well, maybe I don't love God. And you just stepped away. And you've been away for a long, long time. Some of you in this room are not as close to God as you used to be. You know that. And that's okay. We can fix it. But the truth is, when you drift away from experiencing God and being close to God, you know, things creep into your life. You know, I, I'm not sure if you've realized it, but it's been really hot in Kansas City in July. And I, from time to time, I'll, I'll travel across the country and I'll speak at youth camps. And I was in Texas, South Texas, Southeast Texas, while it was really hot in July in Kansas City. And I was doing a youth camp for about 400 students down there from all over the state of Texas. And every day it was 110, regular, and then heat index. on. It was just miserable in Nagadocious, Texas. If you've not been there, don't go there. If you've not been there, you won't know where it is. You won't accidentally drive through it. It's in the middle of nowhere. And then I got home, and I was busy at home, and, you know, there was an excessive heat warning, and it it just got too hot to mow my yard, and I got too busy to mow my yard. And I looked at it Monday of this week, and I thought, man, my grass is getting really long. I need to mow my yard. But I got busy, and I woke up Tuesday and thought, today I'm going to mow my yard because, you know, it's really busy. Well, you know, along comes Saturday, and my yard is, is now like, honey, I shrunk the kids. Any of you remember that movie where, like, your yard is bigger than you? So I went out yesterday and started the mower, and it was raining, but I thought, I've got to mow my yard, or my neighbors are going to call somebody. I mean, it just looks terrible. I've got to mow my yard. So I started mowing my yard, and because I hadn't been paying attention to my yard, some things had crept in there. Man, there were snakes in my yard that, I, that as I was mowing, you know, it's because my grass looked like a swamp. You know, that, that's what my yard looked like. There was a snake, two lizards, a mouse, I mean, dozens of frogs and crickets, and I'm afraid of most of those things, you know, so I was, I was really glad when they went to my neighbor's yard, you know, as I was, as I was mowing, just kidding, only the snake went to my neighbor's yard, true, true story, I tried to chase it and I, I couldn't, I think I scared it when I screamed and it, it ran one way and I ran 
I ran the other. But all this stuff got in my yard because I quit paying attention to it. I quit paying attention to it and things snuck in. And you know what? Some of you have quit paying attention to your Christianity and things have snuck in. You get some stuff in your life that shouldn't be there. But you know what? If, if you restore yourself to God, all those things to change. If you just mow your yard spiritually, they'll go away. Or maybe you've not been inattentive. Maybe you've just failed spiritually. Like, I mean, like you really failed. You did something really, really wrong. Like, like Manning, you became, you became a full-blown alcoholic after you were a Christian. You got in a precarious situation and you had an abortion. You went through a marriage that was just hell to be and you had a divorce. I mean, in your eyes, you really, really failed. And you think, I can never be as close to God as I, as I used to be. I mean, I've done some bad stuff. Do you know that a failure spiritually may be nothing more than the very beginning of your, of your new second chance spiritually? You know, psychiatrists say that every human being goes through what's called a second journey in life between the ages of 25 and 55. Every human being between the ages of 25 and 55 will stop, evaluate their life, and move forward in a new direction or a renewed direction. They'll realize that they're not getting a lot of life and they'll make a decision to be better the second half of their life than the first half of their life. Maybe they do it at 25, maybe they do it at 55. But they stop and say, it's going to be different from now on. You know, the failure, your spiritual failure, may only be literally the starting gun of some of the greatest blessings that you've ever had in your life. You say, Christian, what do you mean by that? I mean, those of you who have maybe been pregnant out of wedlock and at a time were humiliated by what you thought was a failure, and now that son or daughter is literally the apple of your eye. They're the most blessed thing in your life. See, what, what appeared to be falling down spiritually amounted to the greatest blessing you ever received. Maybe you lost your job. You thought it was the end of the world only to find the blessing of a new job, and if you hadn't lost your job, quit your job, been fired from your job, been laid off, you would have never known how blessed the new job was. But when you find out, you think, man, really, that, that bad day was the best day of my new life. Maybe for some of you it was a horrible divorce, that when you began to go through it, you thought life is over, not knowing that you were really going to meet the man or woman of your dreams after that, and you're in a marriage that is so happy and healthy now, that you say that divorce is bad. And I'm not saying anyone should get divorced, but as bad as it was, you thank God that it happened because it led to the best life you could ever possibly live. Those type of things. That's what God allows to happen. You get arrested, you spend time in jail, but you make a renewed commitment there. Bad things can lead to good consequences if you'll meet Jesus along the way and you'll get restored spiritually and decide to go the distance. You had an interesting thing happen this week. One of my greatest high school rivals... From a school that I hated, I grew up in southern Ohio, and and I haven't been back there since, I mean, 1997, 98. My mom and dad moved out, and I mean, I just don't go home anymore because it's not home. Nobody lives there. And one of my greatest high school rivals, I think the last time we spoke face-to-face, we were both getting double technical fouls in a basketball game because we were fighting in the middle of the court in varsity basketball. I mean, we hated each other. Uh, Our team hated his. His team hated ours. I mean, it was like... This is the guys you meet after the game to fight. We hated each other. He Facebook friend requested me this week. (laughs) Look at this. That's that guy. I had to get on and look at his picture to make sure it was him. And I thought, you know, he looks older, but that's him. Why would he want to be my friend on Facebook? We don't like each other. We've never liked each other. And I look back at all the time that we were enemies. I haven't accepted him yet. I'm I'm praying about it to see whether or not (laughs) I should do that. I probably will just to see what's going on in life. But, you know, here's the thing. Some of you think that you have created an enemy out of God. Some of you think you've created an enemy out of Jesus. And guess what? When you get home, you have a Facebook friend request waiting from him saying, want to be friends again? You you want to be friends again? I know we had a lot of bad moments. Do you want to be friends again? See, Jesus never gives up on you. And if you've ever in your life had an experience with God, you know this. C.S. Lewis' favorite quote was, people need to be reminded more than instructed. If you've ever had an experience with God, you know that you can be restored spirit. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. I just want to remind you of that. Did you all hear about the uh, 80-year-old guy in South Africa who died this week, was put in the morgue, and 21 hours later woke up screaming in the morgue in a locked freezer? About scared the people at the morgue half to death. They said the people who were originally security guards in the morgue originally left the building because they were so afraid because they heard somebody inside the locked freezer banging on the door trying to get out. They went back and eventually found out that it was this guy, a little cold, but very much alive, 
took him to the hospital, didn't even keep him overnight, ran a few tests and discharged him. He was okay. He'd had a horrible asthma attack that had left his pulse nearly gone, but not gone. And his family thought, they, thought he was dead. They called the coroner, picked him up, threw him in the fridge, and 21 hours later, he woke up again. My favorite part of the stories is this. The South African uh, medical institution asked people in South Africa, they sent out an alert, and they said, we want you all to make sure to confirm that your relatives are really dead before you call someone to pick them up. I mean, how does that even work? You know, you call 911, hey, somebody's died, you know Call me, make sure and call me back tomorrow. I mean, I don't know how you confirm someone is dead. But here's the moral of this story. Some of you think that you're dead spiritually when in fact your breathing is just, you're almost dead. You look dead. You feel dead. People think you're dead. But you're alive. You don't need to be reached. You just need to be restored. You've been there once. You just need to get back there. And whatever was in your life to get you where you are now, we just... We've got to try to figure out how to, how to get over that so we can be close to God again. See, I discovered if I'm going to live for Jesus, I have to have a ministry that majors, and I want you to hear this phrase, on giving people second chances, and third chances, and fourth chances, and tenth chances, and one hundredth chances, and one thousandth chances. If we don't, we're not going to have any friends. If we don't, we're not going to have anyone at church. If we don't, we'll live in a miserable world because people mess up and life is hard. But if there's a second chance, third chance, whatever chance, however many times you mess up, that one more time, one more chance, my ministry has to be about doing that. Thirdly, if we're going to fulfill our purpose as Christians, you not only have to have a heart about reaching people who are far from God and restoring people who are away from God, but our church and every Christian needs to get to a point where they feel like it's their job to rescue people who are in desperate need of God's help. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to get involved in rescuing people who really need help. You know, there's a word in the New Testament that in the English Bible is is called compassion. And it's used 14 times of Jesus. Jesus moved with compassion. Jesus had compassion. And the New Testament originally was written in the Greek language, not the English language. And the Greek used different words in English, and the English tried to translate it as best it could. But the word for compassion is, is literally, it's the word gut. It's the word stomach. It's the word intestines. And here's what it means. There were some things that happened in Jesus' ministry that made him sick to his stomach. That's what compassion means. Something so horrid that it makes you sick to your stomach. When I, as a dad of a 10 and a 7-year-old, heard last week that a little girl in New Hampshire, 11 years old, had gone missing, it made me sick to my stomach. That's compassion. When I hear a dad is tragically killed and he leaves behind a wife and two young kids, I identify and it makes me sick to my stomach. When we took a team to Joplin, Missouri, three days after the tornado hit and I looked at all the damage done, it made me sick to my stomach. That's the word for compassion. That Literally something hits you so hard, it almost makes you physically nauseous. And it said when Jesus was around people who had needs... It moved him to compassion. It made him sick to his stomach. You know an institution that I really respect, and it may be weird that a pastor studies it, but I've read up on it. I've studied it. I've not yet gone to a meeting, to be honest with you. I'd like to, but I talk to a lot of people who go is Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Alcoholics Anonymous and what they do. Founded in 1935 in Akron, Ohio. Since 1935, more than 2 million members have passed through, and the vast multitude of them have had their life restored to them after a life of alcoholism had had left them about dead. You know why Alcoholics Anonymous works as I've talked to people? Because everyone there has been through the same thing and everyone has compassion on each other. They can identify with what's going on. And nobody sits in an AA meeting and judges the new drunk that walks in because that was them a year ago or six years ago or ten years ago. And if the church would start acting more like AA than church and stop judging and remember when that was us hurting and needing help, man, I think we'd probably minister to a whole lot more people. If you read the New Testament, Jesus spent a lot of time... When you read about Jesus and his friends, here's who they were described as. Jesus was with X, Y, Z. Here's who they were described with. Jesus and the poor. Jesus spent time with the blind, the lame, the lepers, the hungry, the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the persecuted, the downtrodden, the captives, those possessed by unclean spirits, those who were stressed out, little ones, the least, the last, the lost. That's who Jesus hung out with. 
Man, would that not be a wild church? They probably wouldn't give very much in the offering plate in, this, in, in that condition. But Jesus said, that's who I want to minister to. I want to help people who have needs that need to be met. Are you aware of the needs of hurting people in Kansas City? Do you even know? I mean, I think a lot of us would care if we knew, but do you even know? Do you know in the Lee Summit School District, just the school, the school district that we're in, we're in Summit Lakes Middle School, Lee Summit School, do you know there are 556 chronically hungry kids, according to the state of Missouri, in the Lee Summit School District? You say, what is a chronically hungry kid? It's a kid who eats lunch at school on Friday and does not eat again until they eat lunch at school on Monday. And the state buys those lunches. 556 kids who don't eat dinner Friday, anything Saturday, anything Sunday, or breakfast on Monday. 556 of them. That's just in Lee Summit. I'm sure if we hit Cass County and the surrounding school district, there's thousands upon thousands of these kids in Kansas City. Does that make you sick to your stomach? I mean, to, to, to think that that's going on like right here? Kids that our kids go to school with? There's a ministry that our church is partnering with called Cold Water. Got his name from Matthew 10.42. In Matthew 10.42, Jesus said, Look, anyone who even gives a cup of cold water to someone hurting in my name will be rewarded. They've named themselves Cold Water. And their goal is to feed all 556 of these kids. And I've been working with this ministry to figure out how to help them do that. It's, a, it's about $100,000 or so to get all these, feds, all these kids fed for an entire school year. And we're just a brand new church, and we don't have a lot yet, but we're making a substantial contribution, like emptying the bank account before Labor Day to take on as many of these hungry kids as we can. Why? Because that is what Christians are supposed to do. When they hear about a need, they're supposed to do something. And I, I'm telling you, if I had all the money, I, I, if I had 100 grand in the bank, I'd feed all of them. Because it... it it makes me sick to my stomach to think that someone who plays baseball on a team with my son, who plays soccer on a team with my daughter, who sits by them in class, is going to leave school on Friday and not eat again until Monday. I can't comprehend that in the United States of America in this community that we live in. That should not happen. Did you know that in India there are 50 million missing girls over the last 25 years because of what's called female infanticide? In India, if you have a daughter, the villages, the outlying villages in India all have somebody in that village who is kind of like a, a, a witch doctor, but not. It's a nurse who, when she gives birth, when, when a family gives birth to a female baby, she takes them outside the village and she kills them if they don't abort them first, knowing that they're a female. Why? Because they cannot afford to pay their dowry. And they know in India, if I have a daughter, for my daughter to ever grow up and get married, our entire family will have to become a slave to the husband's family for them to get married. So 50 million girls in the last 25 years have had that happen. There's another ministry we work with called the Invisible Girl Project. They're working specifically with these nurses to say, listen, take the baby girl, take them outside the village, give them to us. We'll take care of them. And they're collecting these orphan girls from all over India. They're putting them, putting them in orphanages. They're raising them. They're getting them healthy. They're educating them. They're training them to do a, a job. And then they're sending them out as adults into the field. And you know how much it costs to take care of one of those orphan girls for a month? $35. What most of us will drop on lunch today without even thinking about it. Again, we're working with this ministry. I've been talking back and forth with their directors in Indianapolis, and I said, we want to feed as many as possible. I don't know how much it is right now. It's our church isn't up and running, but we'll do as much as possible because Christians are supposed to rescue people who are hurting. You say, what can I do? You know, I don't have very much money. I don't have very much time. You know, Christian, I don't think I can hurt, I, I, I can really help anyone. Well, you need to hear the story of Rachel Beckwith. Maybe, maybe you heard her story in the news in the past few weeks. Rachel Beckwith is a nine-year-old little girl who goes to, to a church in the Seattle area that's a, a really good church up there. And they had someone come speak about how many kids around the world are dying because they don't have clean water to drink. That's the only reason they died. They don't make it to age five because they don't have clean water to drink. And she got convicted that she should do something about this. She was nine. So she asked her mom and dad to set up a Facebook account for her at nine. And she got all her friends on it. And they sent out birthday invitations. She said, for my ninth birthday... Basically, I don't want anyone to give me presents. I want you to donate money because I want to try to provide, build a well, provide a well so that people can drink fresh water. And over a few weeks, she raised $220 from her nine-year-old little friends. And we hear that and we think, oh, that's a, that's a very cute little sweet little story. She needed 300 She didn't get to 300 And we think, you know, good, good for that little girl, that little nine-year-old. Well, a few weeks after her ninth birthday, she was in a 14-car pileup just south of Seattle on I-90. And three days later in the hospital, she died. 
And in the time that she was in the hospital, through her death, up through the funeral, her church rallied behind her support, and her mom and dad let it know that this, this was her goal in life, to provide fresh water for kids who were going to die before the age of five because they didn't have anything to drink. Do you know that within one week of her car accident, her Facebook website raised more than $70,000 and more than 1,000 people donated. Her pastor, who oversaw the project, said life is coming out of this death because of Rachel's generosity. Here's what she posted on her page leading up to her ninth birthday. On June 12, 2011, I'm turning nine. I found out that millions of people don't live to see their fifth birthday. And why? Because they didn't have access to clean, safe water. So I'm celebrating my birthday like never before. I'm asking from everyone I know to donate to my campaign instead of buying me gifts for my birthday. You can do something. You should do something. This church should do something. Every church should do something. Because the Bible says that Christians like Jesus should rescue people who are in need. And not just people who are in need, people who are hurting. Matthew 9.36, it said that Jesus walked through Israel and he saw that people were harassed and helpless. You put those two words together, basically they were stressed out of their mind. They lived a hard life. Listen, if you work in ministry, if you work in education, we have teachers here, if you work in social work, if you work in law enforcement, if you work with people, you know that we live in a messed up world and people are hurting. I mean, a messed up world. And if we had experienced what other people had experienced, we'd be messed up too. Time to quit judging what's wrong with people and, and, and trying to just love them and help them get healthy. That's what churches do. If I'm going to be like Jesus, I've got to be about finding and helping hurting people and helpless people. And then finally, and I'll close with this. And this, I don't want to say it's the most important, but it's really important. If, if we're going to fulfill God's spiritual purpose in our life and in our church... We have to release people walking with God to go make a difference in the world. One of the most interesting stories in the Bible is Matthew twenty-five, fourteen. It's known as the parable of the talents. And the story basically goes something like this. There was a king who had to travel away for a year to a country, and he had three servants. And he gave one of them ten talents. I'll call it ten dollars, ten bucks. Gave another one five, gave another one one. Said, look, I'm taking off for a year. Do something with what I've given you. Came back a year later, the guy with 10 said, look, I started a little small business. Actually, I took the $10, I made 10 more bucks, here's 20. The king said, good job, you did something with what I gave you. The guy who he gave five bucks to came and said, look, you know, I, I couldn't do much, but I took the five you gave me, I invested, I did some things, and actually made five, here's 10. And the guy with one said, listen, I, you know, I was afraid I'd lose my one, so I kind of buried it and I didn't really even think about it or worry about it. So here's your dollar back. And the king said, you know what, you're an evil servant what he calls him evil servant you can read it matthew 25 14 he said you're an evil servant because i gave you something you could use and you didn't do anything man there are a lot of people sitting in churches who really are walking with god man they're in the word faithfully they're you know they're they're living by great christian standards they pray they go to church and they do nothing to make a difference in the world you're wasting what god has given you we're supposed to grow closer to God so we can then go do something for him. The goal of Christianity is not to come sit in church and have someone preach to you. That's, I mean, that's like the very beginning stage. It's just to do something to make a difference in the world. So our church wants to release you to go, to go make a difference in the world. First thing we want you to do is, is, is identify yourself as a Christian. Let people know you're a Christian. Every time I go to a different town, I, I, you know, I'm a sports fanatic. And if I go to a city that has a sports stadium I haven't been to, NFL, NBA, uh, Major League Baseball, I'll go to that stadium. I'll try to bribe a security guard to let me go inside the stadium and see it. I mean, I, every city I go to, Daniel will tell you, I mean, I hide from them. I try to find open doors. I love going in stadiums and just checking stuff out. And I always in cities buy the shirt of the place I am. So, I, I mean, I've got Red Sox shirts and Florida Marlins shirts. I mean, anytime I go to a college campus or a, or a professional sport, I buy the stuff. And what happens is when I wear this stuff around, people see me and they think I'm a fan of that team. So I'll be wearing a shirt and someone will come up and say, Ah, oh, man, great game last night, huh? And I'll say, you know, it'll take me back. Say, what, you know, what do you mean? All the socks. And I'll look down I'm wearing a Red Sox shirt. I'm thinking, man, I don't know anything about the right. I didn't watch a game last night. I don't know who the Red Sox are. And this happens everywhere I go. Somebody thinks I'm a diehard fan because I identify with them. We want to release you to be identified with Jesus. To put your Jesus shirt on and say, I'm a Christian. 
People say, oh, you're a Christian. What do you do? Well, here's how we help people. Here's how our church helps people. I want to release you to live passionately as a Christian. My entire message next week is how to live passionately as a Christian. To go from just wanting to go to heaven to actually wanting to walk with God every day. That's what I'm talking about next week as we walk through this series. And I want to release you to make a difference in the world. You know, my question to you today, and I'll wrap up with this, is for you to fulfill your spiritual purpose. What actions, based on today's message, do you need to take? Which position do you find yourself in? Are you far from God? You've never even had a relationship with God. Are you away from God? You did it one time and you've, just, you've been AWOL. Have you had no awareness of the needs that existed and you feel compelled to do something about it? Or maybe you've been sitting in church all your life but you've never really made a difference. What action is required for you to do what God wants you to do spiritually? And, and let me give you this answer. It's an easy answer. It's a very simple answer. Jesus told his disciples, the best faith is childlike faith. Because it doesn't even think, it just speaks. You know, a few years ago, I was at spring training. I told you I'm a sports nut. My dad and I, growing up, I used to always watch golf every weekend with my dad. And we watched baseball on TV. And my dad and I, growing up in southern Ohio, said, yeah, man, one day we're going to go to spring training every year. We're going to watch baseball. We're going to play golf in the morning and watch baseball in the afternoon. We're going to do it for a week. Three years ago, we started doing that. And it, it's the greatest time of my year Every year, my dad flies down, we meet in Phoenix, we go watch baseball, we play golf, it's just a blast. And a couple of years ago, I, we, we took Christian with us, and we were at a Royals game, and I had a friend of the Royals who was giving me kind of a tour of the spring training complex, and I didn't understand at the time, you know, that during the game, in spring training games, when guys come out of the game, they leave. Like, their car is right behind the clubhouse, and they'll, they'll leave the field, go through the locker room, get in the car that they rent, and they'll drive back to the duplex or the apartment that they're renting. So I'm expecting everything to be empty, and, and the Royals are playing the Seattle Mariners, and you know we're getting a tour of the, in the clubhouse and the locker room and this and that. We go into the visitor's clubhouse, and as we walk in, the Seattle Mariners' starting pitcher from that game walks in as well. And it's me, my dad, and it's my son Christian. And you know I, I am in more awe than Christian. You know I'm a 31-year-old man at the time, and I'm thinking, there's a professional base. I mean, he's probably younger than I am, just a kid. And I'm thinking, you know, there he is. I just watched him pitch. You know, I can touch him. I can see him. And, and, you know, he's looking at Christian, and he sits down. He takes his jersey off, and the trainer comes over, and he's wrapping his arm in ice. And we're just kind of watching all this, waiting for him to leave so we can finish our tour. And the guy turns, and he starts talking to Christian. He said, hey, little man, what's your name? And I'm thinking, wow, a big league ball player talking to my son, you know. And I'm thinking Christian's thinking the same thing. I mean, if I'm nine, I'm looking for something for this guy to sign for me to take home. So he goes, hey, little man, what's your name? He's getting his, you know, arm wrapped. He's got this biggest dip in his mouth that I've ever seen in my life. I mean, a true Major League Baseball player sitting in the chair. Hey, little man, what's your name? Christian looks around. Christian, but he's, I mean, he's kind of ignoring the guy. Christian, and he's looking around the clubhouse. I'm thinking, what is he doing? And the guy keeps getting wrapped up, and uh, he looks at Christian. He says, hey, man, you play ball? And Christian just totally ignores him. He said, hey, little man, you play ball? And I said, Christian, he's talking to you. Answer the man. And Christian looked at him and said, you got any bubble gum? And I thought, bubble gum? Son, we could buy that at the concession stand. This man was just on the mound pitching a major league baseball game. But you know what? That's the faith of a child. Faith of a child doesn't worry about the details. He just wanted some bubble gum. And he thought, you know, all these guys chew gum and I'm in here. Maybe they have some gum for me. I say that to say this. What do you need God to do for you today? I'm not worried about the details, and really God's not either. I don't care why you're far from God. I just need you very simply to know if you're far from God, you need to be restored. You need to, you, you need to begin a relationship with God. If you're away from God, I don't care why you're away from God. You, you need to be restored. You need to come back. If you're a Christian, you need to recognize needs and meet them. And if you're in here today and you're living for God, it's time to go to the next step and make a difference. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you right now and we just thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And God, I thank you for the funeral of Coach Darvin Wallace on November 7, 2009, that I sat and listened to his boys talk about their dad. And I just wish that one day my sons could talk about me like that, but I wasn't that person. I, I wasn't who he was. And I thank you that you laid it on my heart that day to begin searching for who I wanted to be remembered as and then becoming that person. 
thank you that this church has been birthed out of that. And now, God, I pray for the people in this room. Because every group that we talked about today is represented in this room today. There are people who are far from you who have never encountered you personally and begun to love you and to accept your love. And for some, that needs to happen today. There are many who I'm sure are away from you. One time they were real close to you. Now they're not. And they may have thought they were dead spiritually when in reality it's not time to be put in the morgue. They're still alive. Barely, but they're still alive. God, there's a lot of us in here who go about our life without even thinking about hurting people that we can help. It's time to transition our thought to help those who are hurting and in need. And Lord, there are a lot of people who really love you and are trying to live for you, but they're not doing anything for you. And God, I pray that you'll help us move forward. You know, with every head bowed and every eye closed, the most important decision you can ever make of those four, the most urgent today, is for those of you who are far from God. Because the Bible says no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you may have been ignoring God, He loves you and He's waiting on you. And today God loves you. And the Bible says you don't measure up to His standard, but that's okay. He'll forgive you. And He'll change you to become more like Him. He won't make you perfect, but He'll make you better. And if you're in the room today and you've never begun a relationship with God, I want to pray with you so that today you can begin your spiritual journey, so that today you can go from being far from God to close to God, to one with God. And if that's you, I just want you to pray this prayer with me right now. Pray it in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud. God hears the prayers that we pray in our mind and in our heart. Pray this, dear God. I really want to be close to you. I realize that I don't measure up to your standard of perfection. But I ask you to forgive me for that. To look past it. And to come close to me anyway. Forgive me for where I failed you. And help me to be a better person spiritually. Give me eternal life one day when I die. So I can live together with you for eternity. And I trust you by faith to do this heads bowed and eyes closed all over this room if you just prayed that prayer would you just slip your hand up quickly and down quickly Christian I just prayed that prayer with you yes anybody else Christian I just prayed that prayer with you I just want you to know today I decided to come near to God one more prayer and then we'll be done head still bowed eyes still closed maybe you're in the room today and you're away from God maybe like really far away from God some things have crept up into your spiritual yard because you've not tended it And you're not in a good place spiritually, but you'd like to be. You know you need to get back. And today you want to take the first step back, whatever that means, by mentally deciding, I need to get back in the game. If that's you, I just, I want to pray for you. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up real quick? Yeah, Christian, pray for me. That's me. I need to get back in the game. Just slip your hand up and down, because I want to pray for you all over this room. God, I pray for the hands that were raised that you'll help people take that first step back. Your word says, come near to me and I'll come near to you. Kind of a, I'll meet you halfway if you're willing to return. God, do that for the people in this room. Lord, that we may walk with you. And over the next 40 days, challenge our life. Lord, build into our life, encourage our life, and help us as we get ready to launch this church community-wide to really reach this community the way that you want us to reach and help this community. And God, we ask these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Ushers, I'm going to ask you to come forward. A couple announcements.